Welcome back to the backdrop, Untold Stories in Golf. Hey, Professor, top of the morning to you. Tell you what, my morning uh, Americano is kicking in, getting a little jittery, so I hope I'm not too scatter scatterbrained this uh, podcast because I also have a level of excitement for, you know, we bring, we're bringing on Justin Ray, so someone adjacent to the work I do and someone that I respect and value very much in the scene. So this, this I'm, for you, I'm ready this to for go. you was like a, a fastball right down the middle, right? Like this is your go zone. We brought your world of golf together with analytics and data and math. I, I, I feel like this is Kevin, Kevin's uh dream, dream episode. I mean, in a way, but it's also bringing in someone with actual expertise, like true, like high level expertise. So any of my BS could get called out. So today, like, <laughs> I'm not going to act like I know anything today, right? And because it'll just, you'll be like, no, that's wrong. Um, so I'm looking forward to just being inquisitive today and just asking questions and, and getting a lesson from Justin. Well, like you told me a few episodes ago about, uh, you know, t- telling people they're smart isn't a good thing. You got to, you got to tell them, like, man, you've really, you've really worked hard to obtain your knowledge. You've really researched this well. Uh, I, I won't be, I won't belittle myself and my own intelligence this episode, and I won't compliment you two gentlemen too much. I'll just, uh, I'll just enjoy this ride. Yeah. Yeah. Well, before we get to that, I might as well act like I know something. Um, we're going to go a little deep today on the, the fact of the day. If you, what do you know about time? Let's go with time. Like if you had to characterize time and say what it is, give, give me the Matt Considine summary of time. Time, time is a full circle, you know, it, it, it it's always, uh, present. I don't know. <laughs> it's a really deep question. <laughs> so yeah, this is, this is the benefits of the job of a professor. I get to just sit in a room and, you know, have ruminations and, and one of them is like, definitely it's come across my mind is like, what is time, right? What is the con- concept of time? And it is just a construct, but, um, Piaget is actually someone that studied time pretty deeply and was really interested in child's conception of time. One of the coolest things about time is it's actually not a concept in and, in and of itself in terms of how we develop it mentally. It's wrapped up in the motion, how we move through the world, and it really isn't. I think it was Kant, uh, Kant who's a famous philosopher, basically identified time doesn't exist independent of our experience and what we do. Right. So here's a really cool example. Let's just take it from the rather than a thousand, you know, ten thousand feet up. Let's go like to the surface with your kid. So you can ask your kids this, and Piaget has wonderful tasks to ask your kids on all sorts of things, but here's one on time. So you can start with two objects. Imagine them starting at the same spot. They run at a different pace, so one faster than the other. So you can imagine one running faster than the other, then they stop at exactly the same time. So obviously the one that's running faster does what? Covers more distance. Mm -hmm. If you ask your kid, especially when they're young, which one traveled for a longer time obviously the answer should be they traveled for the same amount of time they will say the one that traveled the longer distance traveled for a longer time yeah so Uh naturally they're focusing on using distance as the proxy for time then actually as they get a little older it's typically a reversal they'll say the shorter one traveled for a little bit longer of a time there's a couple different reasons they do that and then as they get older eventually they're able to separate out distance from duration and then able to say no they travel for the same time and velocity becomes the thing so all sorts of stuff if you really want to be nerdy go dive into just google piaget tasks and you can find all sorts of cool stuff to ask your kids and like experimental situations you can put them in and learn about kind of their concept of the world which is going to be different than yours for a while 
You know, you know, it's funny ever since you joined the show, Kevin, I'll get off this thing and I'll see my wife at lunch and, and you know, she'll, I'll come with like parenting things now all the time, all the time. Like, you know, Hey, we should ask Nora about time. And, and she looks at me, she's like, what is your podcast about? Is this, <laughs> did you guys completely leave the golf thing behind? Are you just now a, a psychology parenting episode? That, uh, that is interesting how, how children perceive time. Yeah. Well, uh, that's, let's get to it. Speaking of time, I, I think we dive right into this, uh, this show with our friend, Justin Ray joining today, um, which I know we're both very excited before we do that. A special thanks to our sponsor of today's episode, true temper, the number one shaft in golf. The number one shaft is made by true temper manufacturers <laughs> under several different brands, including true temper project X Aerotech, and Acra. True Temper shafts are used by 80% of the PGA Tour each week, and its dynamic gold is the winningest shaft of all time. With steel, graphite, and multi-material shafts in a variety of weights and performance characteristics, True Temper has a shaft to help every golfer improve their game. Thanks to True. Uh, Kevin, let's get to Justin. Justin Ray, welcome to the Bag Drop Podcast. Thanks for having me, fellas. I'm good as long as you don't ask me to describe the concept of time. I'm not. <laughs> I don't think I've, I don't think I'm prepared for for that kind of level of conversation. I haven't had enough coffee yet this morning. <laughs> Justin, he does that to me every episode. Just I'm here you to throw be your brain into a giant salted pretzel before you start <laughs> talking about golf. Exactly. This guy, <laughs> I, I was I was thinking of like Back to the Future. I I don't know where. Yeah, I, I started thinking about you know when. Um, McConaughey goes to the other planet in Interstellar. And That's like, right. Time exists in two different, you know, like then he becomes his daughter's age or whatever. I, I'm, you know, I got to rewatch that. Yeah, that, uh, that movie because it. But anyway, that's yeah. I, I'm not prepared for that kind of philosophical, deep thinking response yet. Yeah, I mean, time travel is a whole fascinating thing. Like, technically, like the what the standard belief is, we can't travel backwards in time. That's that is impossible because if we could, then we'd know it already. But traveling forwards in time is like not even theoretically possible. It's like, no, this is how it works. Um, and Interstellar accurately captured that, which is good on them. Uh, We're off to a, just a rip roaring start here. I have no all, idea all, what's coming. All, all, all the golf people are like, what, what are we listening to? What? Yeah. We lost half our so, audience right now. We'll, we'll get to the golf stuff. I, I We will, but I'm going to take us even weirder. I think this blew my mind, and you never can judge – Anything by its cover, because you know, Justin, you're you're like at the top of of this um, data scientist sports analytics world. Like I, I, everyone, your name is synonymous with that. And uh, I was very impressed to to learn that in your younger years you were a musician, uh, a rapper, more specifically. That's go there, man. Like that, that kind of blew me away. I just don't see the overlap there, right? Sports analytics and, and, and rap. Yeah. Uh, t tell us about that. All right. So first of all, life is very long and can take you in a lot of different ways. I'll just say that. Um, if you had told 18-year-old me that 20 years later what I would be doing for a living, I would have thought, you know, you've got, you've got your reports mixed up, right? But um, so, yeah, no, when I was um, – I was like 15, 16, 17. I was, I was just really, I, I fell in love with rap music. I'm not really sure why I loved, I've always loved words. And I think the, the physical construction of putting lyrics together and the challenge of the patterns 
within like songwriting. I always really love that aspect of it. And it was just a way I used to not to be too like downer, but I was, I fought depression a lot and it was a thing that was a really good outlet for me and made me like, I, I really liked it. And I, I started getting better and better at it. And, um, I, uh, you know, I made my own, I guess I called a mixtape, I guess when I was like 16 and it got in the hands of some people at rap a lot records in Houston. And I started working with them for a few years and, um, yeah, I was on a nationally distributed album when I was 17 years old and, um, yeah, no, it was a whole part of my life. And then look, you learn quickly, like the music industry is, is just horrific. Like it's just, it's just a bunch of people lying and, you know, and I got, I, you know, I'm, I'm 17, 18 years old. I get impatient and I was like, I should probably go to college now. So, um, I kind of, I always kind of like, like, I've always loved it on the side and like, I'm still a huge hip hop head, but um yeah it 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 was a big part of my life when i was younger and um and then i kind of took a different path but yeah i know i shared that uh you probably referred to the thing i shared on instagram uh a couple weeks ago or uh recently and yeah no i i reconnected with a couple of the guys who i made music with i had heard from them forever and it was just it was such a blast to like reconnect with those dudes because we became good friends and then just you know, time happens, life happens, and you drift away. But he sent one of the guys sent me some pictures that I didn't even know existed. So I was like, "Yeah, people get a kick out of this." So yeah, I wasn't expecting to talk about that either, let alone yeah. the concept of time. But this is a far-reaching uh, enterprise you guys are putting together. Thank oh, you. you have no idea how excited Matt was when he found that photo. Like he messaged me right away and like, "We are, we got to ask about this." And and I'm gonna take advantage of this. Like that's we'll get to the data stuff later. But who were your influences in the rap world? Like. Who were you listening to? And like when you were modeling, you know, the way you were pulled, I love how you said that the challenge of pulling patterns together through words, like who influenced you in the rap world? Uh, from a technical side, probably Nas the most. Uh, oh, I would, I like, I was, I had a go. little disc man and just, I was on the school bus every day. And I think I memorized his first three albums by the time I was 13. Um, my mom, you know, they had the, the parental advisory stickers when you're a kid, they wouldn't let you buy the CDs out of the store. Oh, we're dating ourselves now because CDs don't even really exist anymore. <laughs> That's right. You had, to, there was a sticker on it and that had the, you know, cause all every, all the rap albums had adult content and curse words and stuff. My mom would go and buy it for me if, if the store didn't let me, you know, buy it. So anyway, Good um, on her. yeah, no, probably, probably Nas. And then from an emotional songwriting perspective, I've always been an enormous Tupac fan. So. Um, yeah. Those are probably the two biggest influences. And then like the guys now I really like are um, Kendrick Lamar, obviously. And um, yeah, but yeah, that's uh, that's kind of where the original influence was. Yeah, th we're kind of. Kendrick Lamar is phenomenal, right? We feel like I feel like we're in a little bit of a death of the lyrical aspect of rap in the same way. Like, I mean, think of like Nas, that time period. I mean, just the number of lyrically fantastic people was, was amazing. Um, and I everyone that. was trying to outdo each other, right? Yeah. And they could, and yeah, they it's kind so... of a golden era. So it's, you know, it's been cool to see um, this universal celebration of hip hop's 50th anniversary this year. And like the, that big medley performance of the Grammys and just kind of a, oh, a collective, re a collective recognition of, of the music and uh, its impact on the world. Oh, any of your old crew last last question of your music career in the in the teenage years any of your old crew make it did anyone get like as, as how far did they get uh i don't i mean look they they were 
they had a nationally distributed album. The guys who uh, I kind of tagged along with, I was in high school. They were probably seven, eight years older than me. Um, but yeah, probably nothing to speak of in terms of anything anyone remembered. But yeah. Professor, get us get us back on track here. Let's get into uh, all right, that's, the world that Justin resides. <laughs> yeah, let's go into... All right, so let's start here. Like, You are so prolific on Twitter. Do you just use an AI machine to pump out all your statistics? Is that what you're doing? Or No, no, serious question. Like, I want to start with, because you are so prolific, Like, I know logging in, like I've, I've really queued my Twitter list over the last year or two. Like, I'm really trying to disengage from social media, so I've pared it down to very few people, a lot of muting, not because I don't want to hear from them, just be like, well, you're the one of the few I don't have muted, which means because of how prolific you are, I log in and there's like 12 in a row that's just Justin Ray tweeting, right? So what I would, the serious question I want to ask you is like, do you have any sort of process by which you choose the statistics you are going to put on Twitter and the posts that you're going to make? Or is it really like, especially during tournament mode, is it just flow of thought that you're just like, oh, this is on my mind. I'm going to put it there. I'm This is on my mind. Put it there. You know, what is that process like for you? So a lot of the time it's coinciding with what I'm doing. Um, like I work with Sky Sports about 20, 21 weeks a year. Um, kind of, we run like a Slack channel for them and Sky Sports, if you're a U.S. sports fan, it's basically British ESPN. So, um, but they, uh, we work on their live tournament coverage all year. So during all the big events, basically their Slack channel is my, my Twitter feed on steroids. It's, it's much more intensive and there's way more stuff in it. Um, because it's things that they can easily pick up in this, you know, if they see a note they like about, how a hole's playing or something interesting about a player. There's a lot more of that ingrained in the Slack channel and they'll extract that and just, you know, say it like it's theirs. So that's what the service is there for. And that's, that's part of the work, but I usually try to say, I, I try not to be oversaturated with the amount of stuff. So like a reg, like a tournament week, that's let's say it's the 3M open on the PGA tour or just a regular LPGA event. I might pick a note or two a day to put out there because the interest in, you know, I don't want to be oversaturating and, um, the the fan base is is larger than just people who are watching golf constantly, I think. So yeah, there is a selective mode to it where I'll pick the things that I think are most interesting um, and share those, things that are most relevant and share those. Um, but it's not necessarily everything I come up with. I mean, for every, let's say of every 10 things I look up and find, um, three might make that Slack channel and one might make Twitter. So um, there's often... I won't call it a filtering process, but um, you find when you're digging so much for stuff that um, there's a lot of a lot of times you have an idea and it doesn't come to fruition, doesn't it doesn't end up being interesting at all. And then sometimes you get thrown into a rabbit hole and you come up with four or five things that are even more significant or interesting than what you came up with before. So uh, it's a little bit of a convoluted process to describe, but um, I've done it for so long that I've gotten really fast at finding things. And so it might seem like there's some machine behind it, but really it's just one dude who's been doing this for a long time. <laughs> reps. You've gotten your reps in and now it yeah, appears a lot, a like a machine. Rap. So what got you into the data world? You know, you were a rapper and you're going down the rap thing, <laughs> but then where's, so take it, you can don't maybe jump right into the, like what got you into the data world, but take us past post rap career. You know, where's Justin Ray go? And then how's he end up here on the backdrop talking to me and me and Matthew Constantine? Yeah, so I went to the University of Missouri School of Journalism. I wanted to be Dan Patrick on SportsCenter when I was 19, 20 years old. Oh, Unfortunately, I got there and there's about 750 other dudes who had the same idea. Um, <laughs> so I didn't, I, at Mizzou, I didn't even really do sports. I did, um, I worked for like an NPR, the affiliate, and like I did 
hard news feature stories and stuff. I didn't really, I didn't really get to do any sports, but I've always been an absolute sports nut to the point where I applied for the ESPN research internship. And I was told there were like 10,000 applicants that summer and two people made it, me and one other dude. Um, and so when I got there, I basically was like, okay, this was, this is why I went to Missouri is like, I'm going to, I'm going to work at ESPN. This is, you gotta imagine if you're, if you're younger and listening to this, ESPN is a different thing now than it was then. It was kind of like an all, it was everything. If you're, it was the only thing that we had too. Yeah. It was the only thing we had for sure. So that's, that's where I wanted to go. And that's where I got to, um, in the research department. Um, there's a really long, complicated, uh, multi-step process to get that internship. There's like a written exam, like a verbal exam. I remember a guy who's he, he, like still high up in uh, ESPN management. He called me one day and I was like walking between classes and they would just ask you questions. Like, what do you think about the, uh, the who are the, who's the best bullpen in the NL West right now? Or like um, rank the secondaries in the NFC South. You know, or like stuff or how many 700 home run or 600 home run hitters can you name off the top of your head? Like, so they're getting a feel for like how, you know, intensive some of this stuff is. And so when I got I got to the the internship, my goal was, all right, I'm going to make myself indispensable and I'm going to have a job when I get done. I still had another semester at Missouri to finish and plan was executed again. I had a job not necessarily waiting for me, but they had a spot for me um, pretty soon after I graduated. Um, and when I got to the ESPN research department, I wasn't all golf. Like I, I worked on sports center. I was the researcher on the Scott Van Pelt show for a couple of years. Um, kind of was able to forge that relationship with Scott. Um, and he was a big help in terms of, you know, getting me, um, out to work on the major championships at ESPN. That time they had the masters, the open and the U S open, um, were part, part of ESPN's coverage. Um, but you know, the rest of the year golf was a less tiger won a tournament. It's probably, it's, you know, we'll strip Tigers round and then a leaderboard and in the D's of Sports Center. That was about the extent of how you get golf on TV. But I did kind of notice, though, when I was there young that, you know, there, there there was a need there in the research department where there was, you know, tons of baseball and NFL and college football and NBA and NHL. There was all kinds of resources for that, but there was a real lack of it in terms of golf information. And so I saw that as kind of like a vehicle, like, OK, like this is a niche that hasn't been filled yet in the research department. I mean, they had a little bit of it, but I could take it to another, you know, kind of level. So I got an opportunity to write for ESPN.com, uh, like a stats-based preview column about the PGA Tour when I was 24, 25, which is crazy to think back on. Um, and I started working on the major championships. And then in 2011, I'm from Houston, Texas. Like um, I grew up there. Um, in 2011, uh, they launched a network called Longhorn Network, solely based on the oh, University yeah. of Texas. And they asked, I guess I was 26 at the time. They're like, hey, do you want to make more money and live in Austin and not Bristol, Connecticut? And I was like, yep, going to do that. And so I did that, <laughs> you know, fully thinking that the network would be a big success. Obviously, I'll probably be a, a part of a documentary someday about how bad that went. Um, <laughs> but, but, but I was still able to work on the golf because in the summers, there's no college sports going on, right? So I was still able to work at the US Open, work on the Open Championship, stuff like that. Um, I was building my Twitter following around that time. And then 2014, uh, Golf Channel kind of started, you know, putting the recruiting on me and, and wondering if I could come join them. Uh, jumped to Golf Channel in 2014, made the decision, all right, golf is what I'm going to do. Um, this is the sport where I, I can make my best mark as a professional. Um, was at Golf Channel for five years, six years. It was a, it was an awesome time and a lot of unbelievable relationships. Um, 
and friendships that I'll have the rest of my life with those people. Um, got to work at all the different majors. Uh, I was the lead researcher on Golf Central. Um, yeah, it, it was it was an awesome awesome experience. Along that time, around 2016, um, a group. Sorry, this is this story gets longer and longer now as I get older. And, and I'm in this, the, this is what I'm we want. The, this world a little bit more, but all right. 2016, I was at the Ryder Cup working for um, working on live from, and uh, this group who was helping Team Europe with the strategy side mm-hmm. and pairings came and like like three of the dudes came and talked to uh, the folks in in our production truck. They're asking like, okay, well, what do, what do you guys do? And anyway, that's where I met uh, Blake Worcester, the CEO of twenty. No, we're now twenty first group. They were fifteenth club at the time. Um, yep. Mutual respect, kept in touch. Um, I be, they came to Golf Channel again in 2018 or 2019 for for a day or two and uh, talked to some of the, the some of our folks there. Um, but in 2019, we kind of connected again and talked about you know our vision for what sports media is going to be in the future and what golf media can be and all the different opportunities that I thought um, this really agile smaller company uh, could be and could, could become. And I joined them in 2019. Uh, we're based in London. Um, the the home office is in London, but we're spread out all over the world. Uh, I have colleagues in Singapore, in Paris, in Japan, San Francisco, um, and I'm just outside of Dallas. Um, but we work in all different kinds. Of, I'm obviously golf media and statistics and a forward facing thing, but we do a whole lot of stuff in like front offices of soccer clubs around the world. Uh, we work in rugby and cricket. Uh, tennis. Uh, we just started our first project for the NFL from an international perspective. So um, we do a lot of stuff behind the scenes as well as kind of the forward facing things that a lot of anyone who's listening to this would know if they know who I am, they would know me for. So that is uh, that's kind of the road to, in a very descriptive way, I guess, uh, long winding road to me talking to you this morning and uh, pondering what time is, which is how we started. This. <laughs> Does uh on the personal side, were you, I know you saw the opportunity for golf. Were you a golfer? Did you grow up as a golfer? Yeah. So my dad has worked for the PGA of America for like 35 years. Um, he was a, he won Texas state championship in high school. He played at Oklahoma, which is where he met my mom. Um, so golf's always been a part of my life. Um, from, from that side, I played a little bit as a kid, like I played junior golf as a kid in the summers. And, um, I played, I think the one, I played in like one tournament in Oklahoma and was way over my head against these kids who were way better than me. I think I finished second. I know I beat one kid. I finished second to last. Um, but I was never, I never took it all that seriously. I was more into baseball. Um, I played select ball, travel ball growing up and then played through high school. Um, and then unfortunately I, I was a really big kid. So like 12, 13, I could throw pretty hard. Unfortunately at age 18, I threw the same speed. So that ended my baseball playing career. I was all done with that. So um, we, we had to turn the page quickly to find something else. So, um, but yeah, no, I, I grew up playing all sports, uh, including golf. Um, and I was better than my buddies in college when we go play, but that's about the extent of my uh, on-course prowess. Do you have a relationship with golf outside of business now? Do you, what's your, you know, do you play? I tried to. I've got a two-year-old, and business is really busy during the year, uh-huh. uh, during the main part of the golf season. So it's tough to get out there right now. I think I've only played twice this year, which is really disappointing. But I'm really looking forward to once once everything slows down a little bit, and it's it's like 106 as we record this in Dallas. It's it's obscenely hot. Uh, so once it cools off a little bit, I'll have some downtime, and like I basically circled like 
late October through November, I'm just going to try to play golf as much as I can. So that's kind of the goal every year when things slow down, I'm able to finally take some time off. But during the during the season, I work so much that basically when I get a day off, I don't want anything to do with it. So it's uh, it's tough. I've, I've got, I get out there with my dad and brother every once in a while, but that's that's uh, yeah, I probably hopefully I'll play a lot more in the fall. I'll just say that. I think, uh, yeah, that's the a common theme in the golf business world, right? That you get busy with work. And then, so when you don't have work, you end up not wanting to play golf, um, until you get that true downtime when you can consume it in a way that your mind's not on work. Yeah, uh, for sure. I, I gotta, you've been in the trenches, like the last, what? Yeah. Look at 15, 20 years of data analytics has been fascinating, right? Especially at, in sports and you've been in the trenches across all sports, including golf, but that's, let's start with golf, this golf specifically, you know, Paint a picture for our listeners the change in data and analytics over, say, the last 10 or 15 years in golf and what that's been done for the sport, especially at the professional level uh, and the way that's influenced it. Yeah, it's really kind of um, time-wise, it's really had a parallel to my entire professional career because when I um, started at ESPN, and this is 07, 08, strokes gain didn't exist yet. The concept hadn't been built. It might have been in Mark Brody's head somewhere, but it hadn't it hadn't been publicly released, of course. Um, there wasn't detailed shot tracking data. You basically had fairways, greens, putts, and the score. That's all you had. And that doesn't tell a very detailed story about how a round went, right? Because the very concept of strokes gained is to illustrate that, you know, a two-putt from eight feet and a two-putt from 50 feet are very different, right? They have very different values. So um, it's been a – I mean, we have – we have so much more than we used to. And it's really just kind of built upon itself over the last decade. I remember being at the Masters with ESPN in 2011, and I tried to get strokes game putting on a graphic on SportsCenter because I think Rory had an awesome first round strokes game putting at the Masters that year. Some, some, something, something somebody did, I'm sure. The graphic was probably about Tiger if it was SportsCenter and it was 2011. But um, you would have thought I would I had put Mandarin on the screen. Like the visceral reaction of people in the truck, like what is strokes gain budding? Like get, get this crap out of here. Like the total visceral disapprovement of disapproval <laughs> of what I had come up with. And just to think now, like a decade later, it's so ubiquitous. It's not even blinked at, right? It's just referred to constantly in every broadcast and, you know, it's, it's everywhere. So yeah, look, and that kind of correlates with all sports, right? And what I that's kind of what I saw in the research department because baseball had they didn't didn't have like the trackman exit velocity data that they have on broadcast now, but they had like batting average against pitch type and like, you know, things that were ahead of the other sports in terms of analysis. And I was like, why don't we have this for golf? Like there's so much stuff that can go into evaluating a golfer's performance, whether it's actual ball data and flight data or like actual performance all over the course. So uh, I'm immensely thankful for Mark Brody's genius concept of strokes gained and it being able to, you know, tell much more detailed stories. And like now, like the work we do um, with KPMG performance insights on the LPGA tour, um, thanks to their awesome sponsorship, uh, we've been able to uncover stuff about the women's game that's never been available before. And that's been a really, really valuable and, you know, really fulfilling project that I've been able to be a part of the last several years. So, um, yeah, we've come so far in terms of how much information we have. Um, it's, it's night and day. It's basically stone age versus the Jetsons at this point. Yeah. Paint a picture for us. Like why, 
what makes and you can make it specific to strokes gain maybe it a I, w- I would say a better statistics to u- use in terms of classifying golf performance versus the you know old stuff of putts per green and fairway sit like what makes strokes gain tell us something so i'll give you a couple of examples um so let's say we want to let's take strokes gain off the tee for example um how is that better than fairways hit well 340 yard drive that's in manageable rough is a much more valuable shot than a 230 yard drive in the middle of the fairway. So there's a value affixed to those two shots. Whereas the traditional metric would tell you he missed the fairway bad. Well, not necessarily because the value of hitting it that much, having hitting it for, I'm using an extreme example, of course, but hitting it further and being in, you know, a manageable lie in the rough is much better than the value of the shot. That was the, you know, maybe a guy popped it up and hit it short, but it's in the fairway. Um, like I said earlier with the putting as well, um, you know, a two putt green, right? Well, it's very different. If you hit your approach to four feet and then miss the birdie putt, that's nowhere close to if you hit a poor approach shot, relatively speaking. And let's say it's at St. Andrews and you've got a 70 foot putt with double break and you two putt that. Well, that two putt is obviously much better than your two putts from four feet where you should have made the birdie. Right. So that's a quick comparison in a way of telling you. Like there's a value affixed to every single shot with the concept of strokes gained, and it can tell you a more detailed story, more complete story about a player's round other than, you know, the score at the end. Obviously, the score at the end is what's most important, but you want to know more than that, right? You want to know how how good was my approach play? How good was my performance off the tee? How good was my performance around the green? And that's what strokes gained can provide. Justin, do you remember golf stat hold on quick intro? I don't know if there's, I'm sure they're still around, but when I was in college, we had to do this thing called golf stat. And it was after every round. And I had such a visceral anger having to do that every every time. And just remind me about, and it was just what you described. It was that archaic, like, check, hit the fairway, check, hit the green, you know, miss the green, missed on the right side, miss the green, miss on the left side. Uh, uh, two putt, what, wait, I was on the fringe. That was actually a one putt. And we did that for every round. We had all these days. And I almost feel vindicated since strokes gained has become ubiquitous and everyone talks about because I'm like, as a kid, I was sitting there thinking, this is effing pointless, man. I know you're yelling at me, coach, because I missed the freaking fairway, but I was right off the freaking green. Like I got up and down. Like, what are we talking about here? And I think that's really interesting to hear you describe the evolution because I felt that as a kid. (laughs) Yeah. Well, like you said, like a missed fairway that is in somebody's pool in their backyard is a little bit different than three feet off the fairway, right? So you're able to get an appropriate value for your shot other than, you know, just the the rudimentary miss fairway. Now, are you, so you're talking about the, the college golf, golfstat.com, right? Yeah. 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 So they, they do exist. Uh, their founder, unfortunately, passed away a few years ago. Um, I think they were bought by someone, but um yeah it's still it still exists and it still is honestly it's it's probably one of the better resources for college golf still so um yeah hopefully we can continue to break down those barriers we're getting through with the women's game next step is college and we can you know make this more universal all around in terms of getting detailed performance data to everybody well i think i've read somewhere that the college game's moving off of golf stat as their major provider too i forget where i read that um that sounds familiar. I, I haven't done a lot in college golf since I left Golf Channel. We cover the NCAAs every year, so I haven't done a lot mm-hmm. since then. But yeah, that did. There were that does sound familiar. Well, let's let's jump to the women's game. So 
You know, one of the things I think I appreciate that you brought up there with strokes gained is, you know, in the academic term, we'd call like explanatory and predictive. We look for statistics that explain either an outcome we already have or can predict an outcome that we don't have yet, right? That's what strokes gained helps us do, where the archaic stats, no, that's basically noise. It had some association with score, but primarily just noise, right? Like you could show me someone's stats. It's like, well, that's a 68 to a 77, which is not helpful. Um, so on the women's game, what have we learned? Cause I love that we're, you know, they're actually dumping resources into the women's game and giving them, you know, some of the access that the men's game has. What's I'm ignorant on this. What, what have we learned? So we're about two and a half years into the project where we've been gathering shot by shot data, uh, for every LPGA tour event. Um, I think we've got, I think in excess of 3 million shots in the database now. So we've been able to get some really good information and it continues to grow as time passes, but um, yeah, I, one of the more fascinating things for me has been learning some of the things that the top women players actually have done better than the men. Um, last year on the LPGA Tour, they made a higher percentage of putts from 5 to 10 feet than the men did from 5 to 10 feet, which I found pretty pretty remarkable considering, you know, talking to some of the LPGA players, they don't always have the best greens. Like some of the courses aren't as yeah. high quality in terms of main, uh, maintenance and, and agronomy as the PGA Tour players uh, courses. So I thought that was really interesting. And then... Um, yeah, like the premium on driving accuracy in the women's game is more significant. They obviously don't, on the whole, don't hit it as far. Um, but there's a little bit more of a value add there in terms of being accurate. And that's probably sourced from, you know, the courses and the setup obviously being a little bit shorter setup for the women's game. But I think that part is interesting. Um, uh, women actually, the LPGA Tour last year, the average approach shot from, I think it was 75 to 100 yards was a little bit better for the LPGA Tour than the PGA Tour. So seeing some of those comparables is is really interesting um, because I think a lot of look there are some men who still think like oh this isn't interesting. I mean you know just because it's women yeah. playing they're not into it. But honestly the more I learn and the more detail I get to dive into with the women's game the bigger and bigger fan I become. I've never been more invested in, it in my life and it's it's purely from learning more and more about it. It's it's a it's an awesome product. The players are incredible. I mean, you saw you know the story with Rose Zhang this year has been really fascinating. Oh, follow amazing. It's so much deeper than that. There's so many great stories all over that tour. So um, yeah, that's been part of it. That's been part of what's been really interesting about you know learning more about the players, learning who uh, you know Ayakafurue is an amazing putter, and you probably wouldn't know that if you weren't you know diving into the details of the statistics or like Minji Lee's approach game is on par with anybody in the world, men or women, the last 10, 15 years. Um, stuff like that. It's really cool to learn. It's I, when I was doing some strategy work for some of the LPGA and below players, it, was, it is a truly amazing how straight they hit the ball, like yeah. uncanny. And did you happen to see uh, Matt or Justin, the most recent Les Blues, the French World Cup team, the commercial they put out? Did anybody see I this? Where they use, so amazing commercial where they took the, the women's, I believe this was the French, the women's cup team. And they put, they used um, some AI generating machine to generate images of male, males and men all on them, right? So you saw them performing, but they look like men, right? So you watch this and like, then they switch them to like, they uncover like, no, these are actually the females. They like wash that away, right? And it just was exposing your bias just on like, yeah. like you've been habitually trained to see a female and just because you see a female the performance looks less but if you just impose a male image on them it looks like no like this is phenomenal i wonder to your point justin like with the women's game like 
I think so much of it is just our implicit bias of just seeing a female that doesn't look as impressive because we're trained that it shouldn't be as impressive. But yeah, what they're doing is as impressive, if not even more impressive across some of the statistical categories. Yeah, it's just the more and more I learn, like I said, and dive into the numbers, the more of a fan I become just because you learn just how great some of these women are at all the different things, aspects of the game. Like you watch like watching the final round of the women's PGA championship this year and Ronnie Yen, I think she had her last like 37 or 38 greens in regulation. But even beyond that, like her stroke state approach was through the roof after we ran all the numbers. It was so impressive. And just, you know, just I wish I wish more men's sports fans and men's golf fans would just give it a chance and learn more about it because it's been it's like uh, I didn't get to work a ton with the LPGA when I was at Golf Channel and like it's just been opening up a whole nother like world of of fandom in terms of uh, just more awesome storylines to follow. What's the, on the storylines? So like take a, a, a ding dong like myself, because sometimes Justin, I'll be honest, like I'll see your stats and I'll be like, I can't put that together. Uh, well, like, I try to make it to where that's not the case. Like I try to make it as... <laughs> like honestly, I said. Yeah, like I mean, I, I think people, they I'll, I'll let you finish your question in a second. No, Sorry no, no. No, off, like, no you, you know where I'm headed with this, which is, and, and that's why I use the word ding dong. It's like, sometimes it's just, it's just up there, right? And cerebrally, I can't get there. But like what Kevin just said with the, the <laughs> they think, outline your bias with this like more more um artistic expression what, what are the ways you get that across i guess you were you were already headed there tell us like how you do that how you take this really complicated you know all these inputs all this data and then you you bring it into a story and you communicate it for the for the average average fan yeah so i'm a big believer in the fact that you can have all the data in the world but if you don't have the appropriate context and delivery and storytelling acumen for it it doesn't mean anything you i can have 10 billion lines of binary code in front of me. And I mean, it doesn't mean anything if you can't extract meaning out of it. So I tried to do it. I mean, it's a confluence really of like working in journalism and doing storytelling. That's what this is. It's storytelling with numbers. That's the way I look at it. So um, if something, you know, if, if it's a really interesting statistic, not just the way I deliver it in terms of the way I phrase it, but the timing of which it's delivered usually on Twitter, or if it's within a broadcast, that's an art form too, that's very important. And the other thing too that you need to understand when you do this for a living is that different, like say I'm working with analyst A and analyst B. Analyst A might want every piece of information in the world I can come up with because they want they want everything at their fingertips. Whereas analyst B, I could write something, I won't call it simple, but it seems much less complicated but they they gravitate immediately towards that. Where if I gave them reams of information, they're gonna throw it away. Right. They do not. They don't want to see it. So Re read understand the card, your Ron, Ron Burgundy. Read the card. <laughs> it's understand understand your vehicle, right? Like understand your audience. So like the way I deliver something on Twitter is different than if I write for the Athletic and it's long form, right? So there's different ways to deliver the pieces of information, and you have to understand the most effective manner for each of those. Now. How to articulate how I do that? I can't, I don't really know, but but there's an understanding there, right? Like um, handing something on a note card to if I'm working with the whole announcer on an NBC broadcast, that pithy little piece of quick information, knowing understanding what the the person you're working with prefers, uh, the moment it's like I might have written something two hours ago, keep it to myself and hand it to him in the moment. That's that's a key element of it, and there's elements mm -hmm. of that with Twitter too, because you know. If it's something, you know, let's say 
the rate at which a player converts a 54 hole lead um, by one, two, three, and four shots. Like that can be, that can be interesting at any point Saturday night. Right. But like something right after a player wins, when everyone is watching the golf tournament and they have the second screen experience up, that's something I want to deliver right then and there. Right. Because it has the most relevance in that moment. So I hope I explained that. Okay. But there's a, there's a, there's a method and an understanding of timing and your, the way you deliver a piece of information. Yeah, I think that that's one thing that sets you apart, Justin, in terms of my appreciation for you. I think, you know, some of the statisticians and analytics guys I've learned from, I, I consider the best ones is always say numbers aren't objective, right? They, numbers themselves don't tell a story. That an inference is the skill set. Like, that's the skill set that sets people apart, their ability to infer meaning from numbers and tell a story with that. And that's just to compliment you and what you do and why I think everybody should follow you. That sets you apart from some of the other data guys out there that just will pump out data as if it tells a story versus like, no, like here's what I can infer, but also here's what I can't infer from this data. Um, so all that is a kudos to you, um, which that's, I'm going to take advantage of that and jump. I was going to say, please um, continue uh, as my ego uh, expands. Uh, uh, other people obviously see that too. I know <laughs> You're going to be doing some work coming up with the uh, the Solheim Cup, I believe. So, why don't you tell our, tell our audience about that and some of the work you're going to be doing to help the uh, to help the red, white, and blue do some work? Yeah, I'm really, really fired up about this. This has been one of the most fun things I've ever been a part of. Um, it's uh, part of our KPMG Performance Insights. Our work we do with the LPGA Tour. Um, I'm working directly with Captain Stacy Lewis and the Vice Captains Angela Stanford, um, Morgan Pressel. Um, and we're we're working on strategy. We're working on you know how to get the best combination of players in the right situations in terms of uh, pairings when we get out to Spain. Um, yeah, it's it's going to be awesome. I can't wait to do it. Um, my company has worked in the past with Team Europe and the international team in the Presidents Cup back in the day. So I'm excited that we're wearing the right colors first of all. <laughs> um, but like I, they sent me uh, some Team USA gear, some hats recently, and I looked at it, I held it, and I was like. Hang on a second. Like I'm gonna wear a team US uh, team USA United States. Like I'm a golf stat guy. What is going on? Like this is so it's kind of like it was kind of a not emotional, but it was like a whoa, like a big moment, like to kind of ex- understand the, the the significance of that. But yeah, no, I'm so fired up to be part of it. Just a small part of it. I I've told the team when I got to meet them a few months ago um, out in New Jersey. Uh, before the Founders Cup, I said, you know, we're not you don't win the Solheim Cup with a spreadsheet like it's it's going to be you guys. But my my goal and my team's goal is to put you in the best position possible to succeed. So, um, yeah, we're happy to be a very small part of it. But, yeah, it's going to be it's going to be awesome. I can't wait to get out to Spain. Without giving away any government secrets or, you know, the launch codes, like, can you get give a, get us inside that team room a little bit? Like what? What are some of the components you look for for these pairings, for example, or four ball versus foursomes? Yeah. So what we want to do is, you know, accentuate the strengths of a certain player. Right. So you look at the course and how it's laid out and we might have one player, you know, we might the order in which a player uh, like is playing odds and evens teeing off is dependent on. All right. This player excels on long par threes and she's going to have those two long par three approach shots on seven and 13 or something. I'm just making it up. But um, that's part of it where we try to, you know, really accentuate the strengths of each player, um, you know, finding the best combination best on based on a player's skill sets. So um, what's the highest probability of winning the match for every single combination of player based on 
the course layout and um, you know what their strengths are. And thanks to the performance insights data, we've got a whole lot more information in that regard. So um, yeah, I don't think I gave away any state secrets there. That that all kind of you're in this world. That kind of makes sense in terms of. But that's a little bit of what we do in terms of um, trying to put the players in the best position to win. Yeah, would a fair comparison be for you know the layman out there that's familiar with other areas? Like in gambling, we might call it expected value, right? Where you're running probability models to say, hey, if we do this, here's our expected value. So like it could be a score, right? If it was actually stroke play, you'd be like, oh, my expected value is a 69.2 probabilistically within a 95% confidence versus if I do this pairing, okay, now we improve our expected value. So that sort of thing, that'd be a good way yeah. to explain it to the 100%. The that's that's a perfect explanation, a way to of one of the one of the many different things that we do in terms of piecing things together. And then, of course, look, it's a tool in the toolbox. That's what I always tell tell Stacy is that this is just one aspect of of what's going to go into this because a combination of players. Let's say I don't know these two players don't necessarily get along, or they play a different golf ball, or um, you know uh, one of them ate some bad sushi last night or whatever. Like there's a human element that's very important too, that we come into it, but this is just some empirical data for the team to use in terms of making decisions. You know, I I don't mean to be cynical here, Justin, but Kevin has the way that he just described what what your work is in this team format. uh, He has spent a, a strange amount of time in Europe recently, both Spain and Italy. And I know we got away games. I kind of might speculate that the and the professor just has this affinity for you know the old world, the old country. Uh, I, he might be working with the enemy here. I'm just gonna say keep everything, even if we're not recording, keep it away from him. He might be sharing it with the other side. I'll just say, how do you know that anything I said was accurate or true? Uh, maybe maybe this is some sleeper cell throw you That's, off type stuff, and I'm three steps ahead. Who who knows? Maybe everything I tweet is made up. You know, I've had someone ask me that before. I have, my buddies tell me you should just tweet stuff that's fake and see if people go with it. And I'm like, yeah, they probably would. But you know, how do you know? You, you don't know. You might you might that's be AI it. right now. You might not be real. What we're looking at. I just watched Mission Impossible Seven. Like you might be controlling everything, and none of this. You've it's all broken simulation through right the right secret. Now. You know <laughs> the aliens they've been talking about. <laughs> What I no, thought would be the most did. logical podcast of our career has turned into probably the most uh, out there and and uh, in the ethos. To so be so legit, when you kick it off uh, with what is time, I mean, you've really right. opened up Pandora's box. Uh, on the male side, I am Team International recently or Team uh, Team Europe. But on the female side, I am red, white, and blue. Like They're still playing for the soul of the game. At least that's what I tell myself. I don't know if that's real or not, but I feel like the game's a little more spirited on the uh, on the female side or on the male side. I'm just so jaded and cynical with everything going on that that talk well, about the health, I'm, the health I'm of the game. They can, my they can biggest concern for my my biggest concern for myself and that and to go off what you're saying is just how fired up I'm going to be. Like I need to like temper down my reactions and stuff. So I'm because I'm a I'm a pretty boisterous emotional dude, and so I think that I need, I'm going to need to suppress some of it and maybe like, you know, I'll be fist pumping like in the cart, like you know, below the surface. You know, there's there's some of that I'm a little bit worried about is me being too fired up. But uh, no, it's, see, um, yeah, no, the, the team is fantastic, and I can't wait to get over there and, and win. I want to see you running around with the flag on TV. We're going to be watching for you just. <laughs> Hooting and hollering. That's a that's bring the true American. Trying to beer right? out of the cup with the American flag around my shoulders. Yeah, no, yeah, there's no limit to what you're going to see from me there. 
build up yeah, the European in all seriousness, for us. I need in all seriousness, it's all about the players and all about their performance and their unbelievable yeah. talent. And I'm I'm me and the team are merely there to help. So uh, that's, and, that's what it's all about. And it is just that excitement is, is palpable, Justin. And it's just cool to be a part of a team. You know, I think that's what you're saying. And I just uh we're we're excited for you, man, because that is um um, they're going to need it. You know, I, I see that other side. They are very good as well. And, uh, that is going to be fun. We'll all be watching. Nice. Yeah. It's going to be a blast. All right. Let's pump you back in the, the data world. Give us your favorite statistic. Like what's something, I mean, it could be something unbreakable, something completely obscure that people might not be familiar with. Like give us like, you know, I do my fact of the day to start off this pod every day. Give us the, the Justin Ray stat of your life that you just love and are obsessed with. All right, so I share this. I, I do a thread every year on Tiger Woods' birthday. Oh, I um, love it. With the most that, obscene, yeah. ridiculous, like you can't even wrap your brain around type numbers in regards to Tiger. I'll give you a couple of those. Um, all right, so from 1997 to 2009, Tiger was 134 under par in majors. Among everyone with at least 70 rounds, so like a pretty, like rounds, yeah. a pretty good amount. I think it was like 50 yeah. players. Yeah. Second best was Phil at 99 over par, he was the only player within 250 shots of Tiger Woods. <laughs> oh wow. And that's how many majors you said about was about 12, 13 years. Um, 97 to 09. Yeah. Yeah. So at four a year. Wow. So 52 majors. And he beats them by over a couple hundred. Right. So that's like four. Yeah, four Phil's four, the only one plus. within 250 shots. That's like third plus 118. So that's like a cl- average rate clip of four shots per major. He's beating Phil to end up being at that. That is like, just imagine that if they four shots per major, he was beating Phil across that entire span. Yeah. I, I, I would say about Tiger, I know people, people who have felt there's been an oversaturation with Tiger over the years in terms of information. I think he's the most underrated player in the history of golf and maybe the most underrated athlete in the history of sports. I think it's Wilt Chamberlain type stuff where you don't really fully grasp how much better he was than his peers until you really look at it. Now, does it make him the greatest player of all time? Jack's more accomplished. So you can look at it in two different ways, but um, here, I'll give you another one. Yeah, give us a couple more. That yeah, that that's 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 get the data, the evidence behind that claim. Just fire away. From 2004 to 2006, Tiger had 1,466 putts from three feet in it. He missed three. <laughs> all three at all three probably at Tory Pines on Bumpy Poana <laughs> in the afternoon. Yeah, probably. Right. Yeah. So 14. 63 for 1466. Unbelievable. And I bet he doesn't sleep at night because of those. So this is the craziest. His ability to close to me is what is is completely unparalleled in the sport. So this is I'm I'm looking at my thread from uh, from last December 30th Um, on the PGA Tour in 2022. Outright 54 hole leaders converted 41 percent of the time. Okay. So that's just All right, 54. That's one, okay. two, three, four, five, regardless of what the number is, they convert yeah. 41% of the time. The last 10 years on the PGA Tour, 42% of the time. So that's a bigger body of work to compare. Tiger was 44 for 46, 96%. Wow. So there, yeah, the tour in general is under 50% closure rate on a 54 hole lead. And he was 44. That's and, his career. And that's his career. 
Wai Yang. Yeah, what was the other one? Wai Yang. And Fiori. Oh, 1996 right. Quad Cities Classic. That's right, Quad, Quad Cities. Killer, yep. Yeah. Uh, wow. Is, that, that, these are fascinating. In his uh, game itself, I mean, what what aspect of the game does does it jump out? Or, or is, are all those just every aspect of his game was equally impressive through? So one of the, the white whales of golf statistics forever is going to be that we didn't have strokes gain data for Tiger in the 2000 season. Um, because... The best, so as good as Scotty Scheffler has been, T to green this year, we know how obscene he's been. He had yeah, what crazy good his streak of top 12. Like he, he finished outside the top 12 at the open. It was the first time he'd done that since like week six of last year's NFL season. That was the, comp, the, the comparison I used. And his ball striking has been awesome. And it's, it's still not as good as what Tiger was in 06. So just imagine the level of which Tiger's strokes gained approach would be in 2000. It was just, I mean, all, all the scoring and winning statistics and all that are obviously blow everyone else out of the water. But it was his approach play that was just so much better than his peers for such a long period of time. I know young Tiger, you think about how great he was off the tee and how powerful he was, how fast he was. And then you remember all the clutch putts throughout the years in big moments because that's what we remember in golf, right? They don't, oftentimes we don't show the big, the approach to 10 feet from 210, yeah. right? Or whatever, yeah. but we'll show the putt that goes in after. But it was Tiger's approach play that really separated himself from, you know. It, you remember Chuck Norris facts from like 20 years oh, ago? Yeah. Where, oh, like, yeah. He, Chuck Norris does not sleep, he waits. This one's my favorite Tiger <laughs> Chuck Norris fact. Uh, Tiger is, he has 41 career wins on the European tour, DP World Tour, third most of any player all time. He has never played full time on the European tour. <laughs> yeah, that's I, oh, those are fantastic, man. And that, so just approach, in, just in majors and WGCs and the occasional Johnny Walker Classic or what have you, he yeah. he won forty one times. He's always my argument. Like that approach that you throw now is like just how good he was, and that's always one of my major arguments for like technology and rollback at the argument at the pro level, like. That's the that's the skill set that sets the greats truly apart from everybody mm-hmm. else, I believe. Like I, I, and I think the data supports that. And yep. like we got to get the pro game back to where like that is a skill set that truly lets them set apart. Because if we ever want to see another Tiger, which we will never see a true, but another generational player, we need that game to be emphasized because that's where the the true greats will set themselves apart. And I, th- I would. Jack, you know, from what I hear, growing up an Ohio boy, like his approach game is not talked about enough in terms of what he was able to do and how he could handle himself from 150 yards. Yeah, because like I said, you think about the two of two of the flashier parts when you think about highlights of old golf stuff you've seen of Jack. Um, his it's him off the tee being longer than everybody for the most part, and you know, hitting clutch putts in big situations because. That's when you write your score down, right? Is after the ball goes in the hole. So yeah, no, it's it's definitely underrated. Like I wish I could have like Seve strokes gained around the green, right? That would be incredible to know. Yeah. Or or Ben Hogan's approach numbers. Like that would be awesome. But it is, his know, putting numbers too would be would be hilariously bad, probably his strokes. Uh, it'd be Scheffler-esque. If it's yeah. a, a text right. away, I guess, right? So um yeah no those are all i i get jealous because look baseball statistics are so comprehensive because they always put box scores in newspapers for the last 120 years so the new age analytics of like war they have babe ruth's war right or yeah you know jackie robinson's war or whatever because they're able to take the different pieces and put it together i've been able to do that with strokes gain total in terms of like 
all the major championships all time and everything like that. But the specific individual aspects of the game, I wish we could have, you know, they know Al Kaline's isolated power numbers, but I can't, you know, tell you Finn Hogan's strokes gained approach. So it's it's kind of frustrating when you when you know about the other sports and you learn about that, you know, they didn't even put, you know, one of the problems with historical PGA Tour data is that they didn't put players who missed the cut in the newspaper. They only put the players who got paid. So there's a lot of instances where I've run into over the years. I think a player has like won three straight events going into the Masters, I think, one year. But really, he had missed a cut and it just wasn't in the uh, database, right? Uh-huh. So that's where we get you go back pre, really pre like 1980. And it's really kind of unreliable in terms of you know, comprehensive stuff. But yeah, I've, I've gone down a rabbit hole here explaining some things. But um, yeah. And we could with you for uh, all day if you would allow us. But we know you got a lot going on, man, and, and you're a busy man. So we'll we will let you go, uh, Professor. Is there anything else? I know you had way more I mean, questions my, for me. Yeah, my because I, I, I yeah we're gonna have to get you back on because I would love to dive into more like comparing golf and the data there relative to other sports like I, I like baseball. You know, just being a little ahead of the curve and like if you did a timeline thing, are we five years, ten years behind relative to baseball? Dive into like. Where you would like Everyone's to see golf? Everyone's a decade behind baseball. Yeah, I mean, like where you would like to Bill see James golf? did back in the day. I mean, there was just such a rabid interest um, in the '70s and '80s, even when he was developing all kinds of stuff. But um, yeah, yeah, we're we're still a little bit behind, but uh, we're catching up quickly. That's for sure. Yeah, yeah that's right. Oh, I just as as an avid uh, golf fan, Justin, it gives me a lot of confidence and feels good to have you on that uh that tower for us and uh and bringing this data to the world like telling the story as you so put it i was really curious in how you do that because i i see when it it, uh, it's it it's done well i see when it's not and and uh you do it extremely well man so just thanks for sharing it with us yeah thanks for all the kind words we'll we'll build you up anytime you want especially (laughs) especially, i'm just gonna call you guys where i need to pick me up especially before (laughs) you head off to spain buddy let's go get that w that's that's right (laughs) thanks guys You know what, Professor, we forgot to ask our friend Justin Ray there. What's that? What his rapper name was. How do we not know oh. what his actual like stage name to perform was? I think when we have him back on, we're just gonna have to ask for a performance. That's what we're gonna yeah. that's, that's what we're gonna do. And we need to, because I mean you could go to that guy. He's he's every single week. He is just like you said, pro- prolific. He is pumping out the information and, and the analysis. And so like, there's there's never a time in golf that you couldn't have him on to talk knowledgeably about the, not just professional golf either, like anything happening. Um, how was that for you? I mean, this is kind of your, your your wheelhouse. I mean, I'm just going to apologize to the audience on that if we got too nerdy or deep at any point. But no, like, just you can tell how passionate he is about the game. Um, and it's so cool to see that. I th- just to go in there and see someone that's just like it's easy for people to perceive data people in a certain way but like no he's just a lover of the game right and he's so pumped to go over and help team usa and the solheim cup uh and i'm just excited to have people like that in the game and helping out you know team usa get after it and hopefully bring home that cup you you you, uh started us off you know fun fact on that episode well you got us real heady with the time question but just uh, challenging preconceptions. I, I got to be honest here. Like, I think I, I'm someone that always gravitates to the written word, to the uh, the poets versus the 
analysts and in the more um, the math the math side of of the world. And I love and you've you've challenged me in this as in our friendship over the years so many times. But you know, I, I kind of thought I was coming in to talk to. I never had heard Justin. I haven't seen Justin. Uh, I just, I, I've, I've read, I've, I should have known reading some of his long form articles that he was more of a, he's such a great personality and he combines his answer about storytelling with the data. It just really resonated with me where it's like, Hey man, like you need both in order to do this. Like the, the data is endless, but that's not it. It's relaying the message to people as it fits into a story, because that's why that's why we're interested, right? Is is as a fan at least um, mm-hmm. in telling that story. He does such a great job of doing it. So, uh, what a character, man! Like it just like you said, loves the game. Super excited, especially excited for the cup, the Solheim Cup. I was really kind of jazzed to hear him talk about that team environment, what that is. So, uh, really fun. Yeah, and to that point too, like the best people in the data world for for audience out there. If you see someone that's like, this is what the data says, and they're like, in your face, sort of obnoxious about it, they probably aren't, you shouldn't listen to them. Um, the real true data people realize their storytelling and data, not in, a, in a, not in a fake way, not in the 99% of statistics are lies, but in the like, no, date, like the best statisticians and analytics people are inference people. Like, they understand what they can draw from data, but also understand the limitations to data. And they're always seeking to get better data. Um, and they're never saying, hey, look, here's the number. This tells you this like, conclusively. Um, it's a it's an adventure of inquiry. Well, Professor, that was a fun one. We'll look forward to having back on. Um, we, uh, special thanks to, hey, we're a month out from the Founders Cup. Headed to oh, Big man. Cedar Lodge, wow. Ozark National. We talked a lot about Tiger, Tigers, Course, Payne's Valley. Uh, it'll be Chicago. Chicago is going for their first win in four years, where we didn't, huh. it, it was How really all that? Chicago four years ago. So <laughs> How about uh, that? they are on the ropes. International, National, and Atlanta members have uh, had a ran a terror. Chicago lost by a point last year at New Club's Founder, Founders Cup at Bandon, and now they have a chance to uh, avenge themselves in, in Big Cedar Lodge. The partner of the Founders Cup is True Temper Sports. So thanks to True Temper for your partnership and support in this podcast, the number one shaft in golf. Professor, enjoy your weekend, buddy. I'll, we'll see you on the next one. Yeah, see you soon. Yeah.